Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Christopher Grisanti joins us now. He's the owner and founder of Grisanti Capital Management. It's great to have you with us here on Bloomberg 1130 uh, Studios. Let's talk a bit about uh, the Trump trade. We had a lot of conversations yesterday in which guests said, uh, wither the Trump trade. It's over. Uh, done and gone. Uh, you, you, you indicated <laughs> that. Now, some, what does the Trump trade mean anymore? Is it up or is it down? <laughs> to some know. extent, it still existed. The last, uh, right. the last note you wrote back in April. What's your sense of where things stand, the, the role that Washington's playing here uh, in the markets, in the economy right now? Well, David, if I had told you that he would be able to get no meaningful legislation passed and he'd go through chiefs of staff and he'd go through communications directors, you'd say, wow, the market will have real trouble going up. But obviously, that's not been the case. I, I think what's really going to matter as we go into the fall is... Is, is what happens with tax relief or tax reform, at least, especially on the corporate side for the market. And so I, I think the market remains hopeful. And uh, Mnuchin coming to the fore saying this is what's going to happen. We finally have a plan. I think that's part of the reason futures are up this morning. So um, I'm optimistic that the rally has legs to continue. Stephen Mnuchin saying he has a plan. There was that uh, joint statement from members of the, the Congress and the White House, just over a page long. Do, do we have enough information here? You disappointed on what we've seen thus far, and uh, as an investor, would you like to see more meat on the bone? Right. Well, it's kind of a double-edged sword because the more information they give, the more they're going to upset certain constituencies. So I think there's a purposeful vagueness to what they're putting out now, and of course the devil will be in the details as you get down to, to September. So I suspect we're going to start seeing headlines about corporate tax relief. And at least at the beginning, that will spur the market. The real question is, will they be able to push things through committees in both the House and the Senate? How do you see the, the interplay between uh, the turmoil, I think we can call it that, if you, if you have a communication structure on the job for five or six sure. days in the Middle East, uh, and, and the markets? Are we seeing it reflect what's happening uh, in Washington at all? Or, or do you get a sense here that the market is becoming more inured to what's happening uh, in Well, maybe one of the good news is for the market for with the Scaramucci stuff is it happened during earnings seasons. Mm. And the earnings have been relatively benign. We've, we've started seeing either uh, solid makes or even some nice beats from tech companies like Facebook. Yeah. So I think that's really what the market's focused on rather than the, the relative short tenure of Scaramucci. Yes. Uh, Chris Cassanti with us and a good time to speak to him. Futures again. Uh, I just lost my eyesight here. There they are. Futures to 103. Up 103. We didn't print 22,000 on the futures uh, market this morning. Just check that. Chris, I want to talk about use of cash. Mm -hmm. the, the theory is I mean, thank you, Mr. Weinberg of Goldman Sachs fame. fame. Uh, trees don't grow to the sky. But the basic idea is there's got to be a point where you don't buy back shares because they're right. just too rich. Sure. Are sure, we there? Sure, sure. I think we – I mean, obviously, Tom, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But, but I think we are kind of there for the folks that are typically in growth companies that have been buying back stock. Yeah. So uh, – I would stop. Now, having said that, it's the part of the ethos of certain companies that they buy back 2 3 5% of the shares each year, and I think that's a mistake. I think Warren Buffett put it pretty well. You'll, you'll take a look. You'll do the numbers, and if your stock is a good investment, you'll buy it, and if it's not, you won't. So where's dividend growth fitting? I just looked at a stock. I'm not going to mention it, folks. It's not a name. A lot of people know. It's a great American success story. They're up 18% per year off the Lehman Low Bottoms of 2009. They've got huge dividend growth. Do you just keep doing dividend growth? I mean, it's Mario Gabelli 101. 
Yeah, I think you do. Uh, one of the, probably the major question we ask when we're uh, analyzing companies is, what is the company going to do with the cash that they produce? And what are they going to do? And it's not the same for each company. There's no right answer. If you're a growing company, you have great markets that are growing, you reinvest in your own business. But if you're not a growing company, you give that back to shareholders and buybacks and higher okay, dividends. Okay, well, you know, the noise of media, you got Discovery Scripts, which is, you know, we're all trying to sort that out. Right, right now, I believe, is 20% of uh, advertising revenue in cable. TV something uh, 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 like that. Are you seeing constructive M&A creating value? Mm. Or is it the beginning of an exuberance? No, I think it's even it's, it's, it's even later than the beginning of an exuberance. I think we're kind of in the middle innings of exuberance. We're in late cycle. So you're starting to see deals that make sense for the bankers, for, um, for the executives that are uh, getting compensated on uh, share appreciation, things like that. But don't necessarily mean that you're going to see higher... Uh, earnings as a result with the combined companies. And, and, and so they're betting on a lot of things going right in order for these deals to, to really justify themselves. What does that deal, that Discovery uh, Scripps deal, tell you about that part of the uh, the, the market, the economy in, in particular? I know you're a, a Viacom We are a fan Viacom, well. Sherilyn. We're so glad that, about that. Yeah. they didn't win that <laughs> yeah. deal. Um, what it is, I think, is a desperation not to be left behind because clearly in the content side of things, there are winners and losers. And so far, at least, Discovery has been you know, on the losing side of the ledger. And you have companies like Time Warner with HBO, of course, Disney with ESPN, stuff, uh, stuff that delivers content that people are really – Want And, of course, the test there, are they willing to pay more for it? And for HBO and ESPN, the answer is yes. And for the Discovery Channel, maybe not. So they're desperately trying to get big enough. And I think the end game there is to get a critical mass so that then they can be acquired and they can be taken out without just languishing. And Viacom, we're shareholders there simply because it's too cheap. They have some good content. We think it's worth considerably more. It sells for less than uh, one-tenth the market cap of Disney, for example. So we just think that's too low. How worried are you about desperation? as a motivating factor here in the TMT space, uh, in, in others. How problematic is that to be motivated by concern or worry that maybe you're going to be left well, behind? you know, it's funny. Being a value guy, we have the luxury of really looking at, at industries that are, are old-fashioned industries. Mm-hmm. TMT is tough. Media right now, it's obviously it looks nothing like it looked even five years ago. So you have to be so dynamic there. You can't settle for the status quo like you could if you were an iron ore company or something yeah. like that. So, uh, you know, if, if you're not, it's the shark. If you're not moving, you're dying in the media business. And so that's, that's a tough way to go. I want to go back to what we talked about before. You said on television you own 18 right. stocks. That's very Sequoia-ish. <laughs> Can you say that a focused portfolio, you know, I remember the uproar over the Fidelity 50 fund sure. a years ago, uh, uh, Mercenaux and the crew up at, in Boston, 50 was, that was outrageous focus and concentration. <laughs> so here are you running virtually a hedge fund uh, with 18 stocks. Have you? What's the downside? What's the ugliness well, I push back. I mean, when I think hedge fund, I think faster money. And, and, and our holding periods are really three or four years. So we go narrow and deep, Tom. So we're yeah. buying Apple at 11 times because nobody was buying the iPhone six and a half or seven. It's going to be a complete failure. Right. And, and, and so we know over the three years there's going to be a good product cycle and things yeah. like that. We're, we're buying Wells Fargo during the credit card uh, debacle because they have a deep management team. They have the biggest mortgage franchise in the United States. And that 
that will come back again over three years, in mm-hmm. a quarter or two, who knows. So, and, and we feel that's better than taking a ride in a market that's certainly uh, now, more expensive than usual. Very quickly here, I'll pull ahead from steal from Christopher Whalen, which is always a constructive thing. Is there something about preferreds here? Do you want to go to convertibles or preferreds and pick up a bigger dividend? You know, I, I, don't, you don't, need I don't think so, Tom. I, I think you can do things like buying – we've been buying Verizon uh, lately because everybody is so down on them because they've done the unlimited data. So the stock has dropped from the mid-50s to the low 40s a week or two ago. 4.8% yield. 4.8%. And, and two weeks ago when it was in the low 40s, the yield was in the mid five. So I'd rather own that with the prospect of if things return to normal, they don't have to be gangbusters, you'll get 10 okay. 15% appreciation on the stock and the 5% yield. We'll come back and do some investment uh, theory here with Christopher Grisanti. Always important to do that. Uh, uh, as as well. Chris Crisanti with us, and that's a well-timed thing. I'm assuming you don't own Under Armour? We do not. You do not, not own Not among the 18. Chris Crisanti. Right. No. We own no retail at all, actually. Um, w- within that, what do you do when you screw up? What do you do? You know, you've got a four-year plan on the stock. How do you figure out you made a mistake, and what do you do? How do you move on? You know, on? that's a great question. That's actually the hardest thing that we do is is when do we give up? Because we don't have an automatic, it's down 5% or 10% and kick it out. Uh, in fact, often when it's down 5 or 10%, that's our opportunity to really load up on a on a position. So, so the tough thing is we have a thesis going in, and whether it's an analyst uh, that works for me or it's me, we write it down. And that's the thesis we have to stick with. So if they report something different, um, there's a tendency for folks to come in and say, well, it's still going to work even though our original thesis didn't work out. And that's when the yellow lights go off and we sell the stock. David Gura? Yes. I'm going to pounce on that and give some wisdom. Write it down. Uh huh. There's no substitute. This goes back to Gene Peroni, who was a wonderful technician off of his father's historic work. Eugene Peroni said the same thing. You got to write it. You got to plot the chart with a pencil. There's just something about writing it down Mm -hmm. which clarifies thoughts, right? Right. And in our analyst meeting, everybody's required to have a memo, even though with electronic communications, it's so easy to send emails. But we have to have something in writing and it's got to have numbers in it and it can't be conceptual. It's got to be data-driven. Um, and, and so that's something we can return to when things are going yeah. going awry, as they always do in a three- or four-year I would suggest in the digital world, David, write it down as a lost art. Mm-hmm. As is cursive. But that's, well, that's a different. They don't have to write it in cursive. <laughs> we could go all day. We right. could go all day on the lack of cursive in schools. Chris, a few minutes ago, you mentioned Wells Fargo. You said you bought a lot during that first scandal. We had another sure. one uh, this week in, involving right. uh, these sort of fake insurance uh, schemes. Uh, how do you how do you react to that? Is that another opportunity to to yeah, buy? How confident David, are you in the leadership? You know, I'm going to push now. back a little. Yeah. I don't think this this one. <laughs> not this the same scale. Not the same scale. Yeah. They, they really were buying insurance for folks that had car loans, which they're allowed to do. They just they, I think they just screwed up, and and uh, I don't think anyone's more embarrassed about it than they are, and they're going to spend a bunch of money, but they, it'll be behind them. I think relatively quickly because I don't think there was kind of fraud. I think it was just a bad systems management issue. Uh, are you worried about a recession at this point? Just stepping back and looking at the economy broadly, are there any indications to you that uh, things are about to turn? No, I'm always scared to say, no, I'm not worried. Um, But I have to say the indicators that we look at, you know, uh, weekly job claims, which is kind of the most coincident indicator, um, uh, our average hourly earnings and things like that, there's no yellow 
lights flashing terribly brightly. Um, and so the other thing I would say is obviously it'll be too late when they're all flashing brightly. And I do think we're l- obviously uh, this this uh, recovery is long in the tooth, but we went down so far in 08, 09. So I'm, I'm one of the guys who thinks it should take longer to come back because because we went down so far. So I'm not troubled by the length of the of the recovery. What's the, the biggest misunderstanding about value investing when you talk to people about it? You know, I think the big mistakes value investors make, even good ones, are, are to be too dogmatic. Mm. I mean, there's an old saying by Oscar Wilde, which I love, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm not young enough to know everything. And, and the longer you go in this business, you realize that you have to be adaptable to make money. So when folks say, oh, well, tech is too expensive, there's going to be a huge crash, maybe, but maybe that mm. crash doesn't come for two or three years. And meanwhile, buying companies that look expensive, like Oracle, which is at the higher end mm-hmm. of its range, which is, but still only 18 times next year's number. So, so stuff like that, there are compromises I think you make in this kind of environment that I don't apologize yeah. for. Chris, thank you. Very valuable. Chris Grisanti, always valuable, but particularly here. With futures up four, Dow 21,891, closing in on S&P 2,500. Wow, the VIX 10.30. That's a good time to speak to Chris uh, Grisanti. His research is definitive in its detail on where we're going. What's great about Chuck Gabriel is he doesn't hide away from the sausage making of what cometh in Washington. And of course, David Gura, you know it's busy. Charles Gabriel, Capital Alpha Partners, joining us on our phone line. David, why don't you bring in handsome Chuck Gabriel? Because he knows (laughs) everything there's to know about the path from budget reform and budget passing to tax reform and tax reform passing. Chuck, Good luck let, with that. <laughs> Chuck, let me start by asking you what members of the House have left behind here. There was a vote on uh, a budget before they before they left town. Where do things stand when it comes to the budget in particular? What are they going to face when they get back? I guess on September the 5th? I mean, they've got a healthy vacation here. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the ambient air quality improves mightily down <laughs> here in Washington <laughs> around now. The Senate will be here at least another week. But uh, they, they, that is a must-do business, even though they didn't pass a budget for in most of 2017. So they do have to pass a budget for the, the fiscal years, the 12 months that begins uh, uh, October 1. And they've passed a, a budget resolution in uh, the, the House Budget Committee, uh, but it has not yet gone to the floor. And there's evidence that it's, uh, it, it faces a, a very high hurdles on the House floor, so it might not pass on the House floor. And the House budget would be indigestible in the Senate. So, you know, just to, not to belabor it, David, we're, we're starting a, a messy process that's going to all be pushed to the end of the month, at which point we might have a little bit of a of a little skirmish or government, uh, a little suspense about a government shutdown, uh, this time with the debt ceiling attached. And all, you know, with Wall Street really mostly focused on the tax cuts, uh, the, this whole story really has to play through before they can pass a budget resolution that both the House and the Senate can accept, probably a shell budget resolution that will allow them to move a, a tax bill through the Senate, and that probably won't come till October, November. So, you know, uh, backing this all into what you'll be talking about all day today, yeah. you know, we've got a new chief of staff, uh, and the legislative director is uh, pivoting right off the excitement that you're having a reboot of the White House is already sort of exhorting the Congress to begin marking up tax reform in, in September or October. 
and that's just a laughable idea. So <laughs> that's that's where we are down here. We, we had uh, Senator Jeff Flake here, the junior senator from Arizona, on the show yesterday, and uh, he said that uh, if, if he's going to be a realist, health care is uh, now solidly behind the Senate. They've got to move on to, to other things. That seems to run counter. That opinion seems to run counter uh, to what we're hearing from, from the White House, uh, both through official and unofficial channels, uh, through statements and, and tweets. Uh, do, do you think that it's uh, dead for the time being? Yeah, it's, you know, to, to you know, channel Princess Bride, it's mostly dead. Uh-huh. You know, there, there's the the problem is that uh, you still have a uh, an imploding set of uh, you know private uh, insurance exchanges that yeah. are going to have to make some very key decisions. Also in September, I mean, basically you keep drawing a lines towards a, a you know a sort of a concentric circles that point to. You know, Ghostbusters-type clouds over the Ansonia building, you know, in Washington, you know, in September. Um, and um, so you, they, they can't just walk away from it. They can walk away from making it, you know, their, their, their sole pursuit, uh, and they can try to move on to a fiscal 18 budget resolution to move tax reform. But, you know, they're going to have to deal with things like the mm-hmm. you know, contribution-sharing reimbursements, you know, to bail out the insurers. They'll probably have to do that in an appropriations bill later this year. And if they do move to tax reform in a fiscal 18 budget resolution, they can keep a placekeeper in there Mm -hmm. to allow for, you know, for health reform to be attached to, you know, that that bus. So they aren't yet really fully done, but for the most part, you can Right. Sort of drive a stake in the idea of skinny repeal. I wanted to drag it back, Chuck, to your expertise, which is the sequence of all this. Are, are budget discussions and tax reform in tandem, or is the horse before the cart with the budget reform? Mm-hmm. They, uh, we've had discussions and in, in, you know, initial hearings and uh, now a markup and passage of a House budget resolution in the, in the House Budget Committee, Tom, but you know, meanwhile, you know, at the same time, of course, they, they have had, uh, you know, the rollout of the early Better Way, Brian Brady yeah. tax bill, and, and now, you know, sort of principles from the tax, uh, the big six, so to speak. So, you know, they're, they're, they're on separate big tops. They're running simultaneously. Right, right. Um, but, again, the, the, the one thing that is a, is a given every year, like death and taxes, is, is September 30th and the having to fund the government after yeah. After at the beginning of the fiscal year, that's coming, and this time we have a yeah. debt ceiling extension uh, to attach to it, and we have to get through that before we can lock in a new budget resolution, right. a fiscal eighteen budget resolution that will allow them to move tax reform through the Senate with fifty one well, votes. So th- that's what's ahead of. Let me ask you a Scoop Jackson uh, a question. I guess is the definitive fiscal uh, conservative. Who's going to pay for all this? <laughs> well, it, it'll be interesting if they. You know, I think there are many who would love to just do tax relief, but there are a lot of barriers to that based on, you know, this ongoing sort of dialectic we've had in Washington about deficits and budgets. And Republicans made such a big deal, obviously, and it helped them to retake the House in 2010 and the Senate in 2014, you know, with the Tea Party movement. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure on President Obama to put, you know, sort of uh, provisions in place to guard against deficits. And so he signed a bill in 2010 that really guards against uh, what we call you know, statutory paygo. It, it actually 
will force a sequester on things like Medicare if you add to deficits within a five or a ten year window. It's something that's really geeky, almost totally forgotten in Washington. But there, as a result of this, the reality is, well, you know, all that most um, analysts talk about is adding to deficits outside of a 10-year window. There is this really sort of unseen, sort of nasty, embedded problem there that really does take the notion of tax relief largely off the table. And if you're not talking tax relief, you're talking about having to broaden the base and, you know, deal with things like eliminating or haircutting the state and local tax deduction, making people take their IRAs, uh, 401k contributions on an after-tax Roth basis, you know, instead of a pre-tax basis. We call that uh, Rothification. A lot of these ideas to raise revenues in order to broaden the base and lower rates uh, really are, are quite roiling for a number of major constituencies, like the, you know, the mortgage interest deduction might mm-hmm. not be directly at risk, but if they double the yeah. standard deduction, that could hurt the realtors okay. and the builders as well. So we're going to, you know, we're going to go through a really kind of very worrisome September, October when we finally yeah. do get to tax reform. It's not going to be all, you know, all joy. Okay. That's for sure. I'm completely depressed, David. <laughs> 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 yeah, maybe. Hey, maybe, Tom. Maybe the good news would be, you know, if we if we really are provoked by uh, Kim Jong Un. And the Koreans, that would unite us, and then we'd see the real strength of the Trump cabinet with McMaster and just, Madison just, and, and now General Kelly. I, I'm just trying to get the Red Sox to win six in a row. It's just, Jump in <laughs> it's just something. Chuck, yeah, help me understand this, this op-ed that ran in the Wall Street Journal a little earlier uh, this week, centering on uh, the issue of scoring and, and tax reform. Of course, yeah, there's been this yeah. big debate over the, the CBO, and we've had a number of um, folks in the administration question the uh, the value of the efficacy of the Congressional Budget Office. W- what was the argument being made in the Wall Street Journal? Explain that to us, if you would. Yeah, if you know, the, you know, obviously the, the the CBO has generated a lot of, of antagonism, particularly among Republicans, in the way it scored these these health care reform plans. So it's you know, antagonism towards the CBO, particularly among Republicans, is at a all time high. And, and, you know, the CBO and the Joint Committee on Taxation have been the official uh, scorekeepers, if you will, with regard to how, uh, you know, uh, deficit re- tax reductions are, are scored or analyzed. And if you're talking about revenue-neutral tax reform, it's very important about how they score it. And so, you know, you, you have efforts on about two or three fronts to try to, to compel the, the parliamentarian in the Senate uh, to, to, for instance, to allow dynamic scoring, have more positive economic feedback, you know, if you will, uh, from the early years of broadening the tax base, generating more productivity, uh, and, and as a result, sort of assuming that, you know, tax reform will pay for itself over a, a longer period. So there's this effort towards dynamic scoring. There's efforts, uh, you know, towards maybe extending the budget window to 15 or 20 years so you can get more bang for the buck in the first 10 but the newest idea was from the journal. It's not a, a brand new idea, but it's just basically that instead of using CBO Joint Committee on Taxation scoring, that Republicans should just take a score from the Department of the of the Treasury, or OMB, and of course OMB is projecting 2.6 percent growth with the Trump budget instead of 1.9 percent growth uh, under the um, uh, you know under the CBO. And if you're assuming bigger growth. You get, you know, even bigger sort of feedback loop, if you will. And uh, as a result, it would, you know, tax, you can have a bigger measure of tax relief that would pay for itself over the budget window. That's what this is about. 
Chuck, thank you so much. Chuck Gabriel with Capital Alpha Partners with the uh, sausage. I love it. You know, it's great, David Gurr, that we have a mix of people on Washington. Some are really hyper-focused on policy, like yeah. Chuck. Long, lengthy notes. Uh, sort of wonk, wonk 101. And then a guy like Stan Collender, who's got the whole political thing worked out. Greg Villiers publishes this morning. And it's not that it's gloomy. It's just realistic mm-hmm. about time. It's August 1st. What are you within the politics, David Gurr, that you do better than me? What does August 1st signal to you? You know, it... <laughs> The start of vacation for a lot of these lawmakers, as Chuck was saying, Senate's going to stay in session for a little while longer than than usual. But uh, you know, as we listen to the president today, I think it's important to keep uh, some realism uh, at the front of our mind here. Uh, you have legislators who are leaving town, and uh, I think there's been a lot of disappointment with what the White House has produced thus far when it comes to tax reform. As Chuck mentioned, there was this uh, one-page statement of principles from uh, White House officials and uh, Republican members of Congress, not a whole lot longer than the first set of uh, principles that we got. Of course, this one says the border-adjusted tax is firmly uh, off the table. Interestingly, I talked with Tim Phillips, who's the, the president of Americans for Prosperity. That's a Koch brothers-backed group, big conservative group that's also pushing for tax reform. He said he was happy uh, not to have a, a huge amount of detail here, that that helps with the negotiations going uh, forward. Interesting to talk to him in part because uh, Americans for Prosperity was not as uh, all in on health care as you, as you might have thought. This is something they've wanted to have happen for a while, this debate over tax reform. So uh, you know, I think we're going to take a little pause here uh, over the month of August. September, as Chuck mentioned, I think the focus is going to be on uh, issues of the budget, the debt ceiling. Uh, and then uh, we'll see if this full court press can extend through that uh, into, into October when maybe it can be picked up once again. Yeah, I, I just we're here. The way I look at August first is, and, and you know, David, you look out at the trees changing color. We're not there yet. The summer's still going full tilt, but in three or four weeks, which is like tomorrow for Washington, I believe yeah. And as as both Vellier and and Gabriel mentioned. This budget discussion isn't a normal discussion. No, Chuck, uh, sorry, Greg Vallier calling that a train wreck, looming train wreck. Yeah, and, uh, you know, forget about the surprises that we could see in the drama coming out of the White House and and, and that. I just, what I would suggest, folks, within us covering economics, finance, investment, that this fiscal ballet isn't the normal discussion that you have when you launch into August. I rarely do this. I'm looking at the futures to get the Dow 22,000. Dow futures this morning, 4.51 a.m., 21,961. 21,961. In our ute, neither I or David Harrell ever thought we would get in the vicinity. Dow 20,000 was like, really? And here we are knocking on Dow 22,000 and that door. Uh, David, wonderful to have you back with us. Is it a comfortable time to be in international equities because you see the Dow just race, race, race ever higher? Well, the fact that the Dow racing is probably give, giving a little spillover effect to global equities, equities everywhere. Uh, but clearly one of the reasons why these markets are increasing is because the profit growth is going up faster than I think people expected yeah. probably six, nine months a year ago. And what we're finally starting to see happen in Europe is all the various 
economic maladies and political maladies seem to be more in the rearview mirror and and where we're starting to see yeah. better growth rates out of Europe, uh, greater than 2% growth, falling unemployment, lower loan losses. You're finally starting to see a little spark in the European economy. And when you combine that with low valuations, it gives people a bit of right. uh, room to be enthusiastic about European stocks in particular. To, to give you an idea, folks, if I look at the CAC 40 one in Ken Pru, it's a late great Ken Pruitt's favorite um, French indices, CAC 40, um, up 16% in euros, up 23% based in U.S. dollars. I mean, that's, David, where you're getting almost a play on it, aren't you? You're, you're getting a currency play as well. Yeah, there was a time not too long ago, you know, a few months ago before the, the Europe bounced a little bit, that you were really buying not only cheap stocks, but you were buying cheap currencies. And another way this manifested itself, if you look at what an international index has done in the last five years, substantially, substantially underperforming S&P 500. Why? Because of the dollar strength. Now, finally, what's happened in the last three or four months, the dollar rally has kind of stalled a little bit. And this has added propulsion to the returns of international equities. So you finally see today what's happened in the last five years recently is starting to turn a little bit as the dollar is, in fact, weakened against the euro in particular. Remember, it was only a year or so ago when people were predicting the euro was going to go to a dollar, you know, one to one, yeah. maybe even below, you know, and here we are at 116. Yeah. Well, I mean, BNP Paribas, just the, the dominant French bank, and I know that's something you've talked about for years, they pay a much more ample dividend. Let me compare and contrast, folks, J.P. Morgan uh, dividend. J.P. Morgan's yield is 2.2 percent. And uh, BNP Paribas is 4.1%. So you get twice the yield. Can you model in an Anglo-American dividend growth for European companies? From the basis of where they're both starting, you should see better earnings growth from BNP than J.P. Morgan going forward. Now, in the last year, it was different because the U.S. economy, the recovery was a little bit stronger and a little bit earlier. Now, we're just starting to see the European economy recover to acceptable levels. And BNP, in particular, is also exposed to Italy uh, with a small exposure in the United States. But more importantly than that dividend yield of almost 4.5%, is, you know, it's just trading at just over 10 times earnings. Um, and, you know, just above, you know, book value. So, well, actually, uh, below total book, but uh, just around tangible book value. So, you know, you are seeing very, very good valuation. It's something that should be able to grow earnings at least mid-single digits. Let me ask you, if I could, David, just the degree to which personality matters when we talk about these uh, these big banks. So we had HSBC reporting uh, yesterday saying it's going to buy back up to $2 billion uh, in shares. And so much of the focus was on the outgoing uh, head of that bank, on Stuart uh, Gulliver. I wonder, when you, when you look at a bank, when you assess whether or not to invest in a bank, uh, the degree to which you're, you're thinking about who's running it. Well, that's important because who's running the bank establishes the culture of the bank. And I think in order for banks to make money, this is one business where you want them to be somewhat risk-averse. And there's two or three things they have to really be focused on. One is make sure you have good credit standards and lending standards. Two is make sure you're able to control costs, which means putting the right people in the right jobs and spending money on IT in the right places. So lending costs. And then you have to think about product development. 
and be able to offer your clients what they want. And if you're a good management team and if you focus on those three things, probably in that order, by the way, you're going to make money over time. Banks are, as we know, a little warrant on the economy. As economies expand, credit expands. As economies are healthy, you have lower credit losses, etc. So these are conduits to the economy. You want someone steering the ship who could really focus on those three factors. A good credit underwriting, low cost, and good product development. Let me get you to react to the uh, the latest earnings report from Intesa San Paolo that was out uh, this morning. I know you've been an investor uh, in that bank uh, as well. Looks like uh, net profit fell a little bit here, but came in above uh, analyst expectations. Uh, what's your What's your read on how that uh, that bank is doing? Yeah, this is a very very solid European bank, and for years it was punished because it was a bank in Italy, and everyone thought uh, four or five years ago that perhaps. Perhaps Italy was even going to default on their debt. Remember the whole pigs thing? I mean, we kind of forget these things. But four or five years ago, I remember standing up at a conference listening to someone from PIMCO saying that uh, Portugal is going to default, uh, Italy is going to default, maybe Spain, and could possibly be France. And I thought, this is just really a bunch of bunk. But, you know, and it, and it, it never happened. But there was a belief in the markets. And as a result, these bank stocks were priced as such. You could get them for 55, 60 cents on the dollar uh, book value per share. And in Tesla Sao Paulo, even though being one of the better run European banks was caught up in that whole windstorm, and it really became a great buying opportunity. And I, th- I still think it is substantially undervalued. Now the stock has tripled or quadrupled from those days, but it's still trading at extremely valuation mm-hmm. levels. I mean, look at its dividend yield, Tom. If you want, if you yeah. want a good dividend stock, I mean, this this company yields seven percent, and we believe yeah. it is a very safe yield. Seven percent. David Harrow, yeah. yield hog. We're going to come back with Mr. Harrow. He needs to look at the uh, the Chicago Tribune this morning and notice that the Cubs are two and a half games in front of his Milwaukee uh, Brewers as well. Maybe he'll come back after he digests that information. With us, David Harrow, with Harris Associates, and with just really sporting performance uh, in the international area. I can honestly say, folks, and there's there's years where David has an off year, maybe, you know, one year out of five, one year out of eight, I'll let him tell us. But when you look at the Bloomberg screen, I can honestly say there's nobody running major money with a 96th, 94th, 99th, 84th, and 92nd percentile uh, performance across many, many areas. Why do so many active managers, David Harrell, underperform? Is it they're over-diversified? Is it their R-squared is so close to a benchmark? Is it because they don't root for the Milwaukee Brewers? What is it? Uh, most of them are not Packer fans of those underperforming <laughs> yeah, Packers. Okay. And, that, and they criticize Aaron Rodgers, and this leads to the f- defeat. Uh, no. In all seriousness, I think one of the keys to investment success is sticking to your investment philosophy and style, even though in certain periods of time, as you mentioned, it may be out of favor. And what you can't do is let clients and consultants and whoever talk you out of a sound, if you have a sound philosophy, which is the foundation of you know, an investment process is a philosophy. And at Harris Associates, we're value investors, and we define value as low price and high quality, and you stick to that. 
You know, our belief is that a company is valuable because of the cash it generates. And so just because stocks are going up in price doesn't mean they're more valuable. And what happens to professional investors is they get fixated by price movement, and they let price movement dictate their decision-making. They don't have the courage to tell people that, well, okay, we're not buying it because it's not doesn't fit our invest, investment style. Same thing on the way down. When share prices fall, Often professional investors lose their nerve, and despite the fact that it would be acceptable and the right thing to do from an economic perspective to keep buying the stock, they actually sell the stock because they don't want to have to explain to the others, to their clients, to consultants, why they're holding losers. And I think that's what really separates successful investment management from unsuccessful is the ability to stick to your knitting. Uh, first, you know, the knitting has to be good, and then you have to stick to it. Uh, and I think that second part is what a lot of managers have problems with. They just don't want to go through the exercise of explaining why you own something that's fallen. And I, personally, I think this is what we get paid to do. This is why we get an investment management fee, is to explain ourselves. And a good case for us was a few years ago with Glencore. I mean, the first 20 minutes to 30 minutes of every meeting, of every interview, of every call, was why do you own Glencore? Now, instead of just punting it, because you don't want to answer the question five times a day, you just keep answering it. (laughs) This is what you get paid to do, is to answer that question. Let me put a question to you, David, that Tom put to Chris Crisanti at the top of the show. He, he asked uh, Chris, uh, when you decide to get out of uh, an investment, and I look at uh, your investment in Honda Motors, for instance, you stuck with that one for a while and ultimately uh, uh, got rid of that, that position. Uh, how did you decide to do it? How do you decide when, uh, when enough is enough? By the way, that is a very, very good question, because in the particular case of Honda, it wasn't because our measurement of intrinsic value coincided with price, and that's usually when we sell a stock. That is a victory, when price reaches our measurement of intrinsic value. But there's another reason why we might sell a stock. If we believe we were wrong, if we believe that we were not, in fact, investing with a value-creative management team, and to us... Value creation is what causes price and value to converge. And if there's no slope on that value per share curve, then you're wrong and you have to get out. And in our, we believe our assessment of, of Honda, we made a mistake. Um, we were having a great deal of difficulty of getting answers out of management. And in fact, the, the right. chairman left. They didn't replace the chairman. The president yep. wouldn't meet with us. We thought nuts to this. Okay. I, I, just because of time, David, that's such an important statement. I want to get to it. Have you seen a change in Japanese management's plural to a more Anglo-American dialogue with shareholders? I haven't seen it. I would love to say yes, but Tom, you are right. If it, it, it's small, it's this yep. is a huge problem in <clears throat> Japan. They just do not want to run the companies for the owners. There are so many other constituencies, the boards, the suppliers, the employees. These are all important constituencies. Oh, Don't on. get me wrong. The major con- companies are, yeah, the yeah. major constituents are supposed to be we, the shareholder. Yeah, the major constituency is culture. It. I mean, it's yeah. all Okay, David, thanks so much. Come back when the Brewers are in first place because it ain't happening. <laughs> Chicago resurgent, Chicago Cubs resurgent this morning. David Harrow with Harris Associates. Check out his track record. You know I'm a fan, but he's been on fire for uh, 18 months, two years to say. It's, it's so important, uh, David Gura, how um, you, can, you can catch up 
quickly with the international when they finally uh, move. A brief and two, always too brief conversation with Yakum Fells of PIMCO. Yakum, how new normal are we right now? I mean, I, I, we've got Alan Greenspan telling Bloomberg uh, that that he, he would call for secular stagnation, the idea of inflation dynamics, growth dynamics. What's the story as you see it? Are we in a time of recovering economic growth or not? Well, Tom, I think we are in a time of recovery uh, for global growth, definitely. But I, I also think we're still very much in the new normal and the new neutral that you know we've been talking about for years here at PIMCO. So the new normal and the new neutral is really about low potential output growth. And I see no signs that trend growth is picking up. Uh, what we are seeing is a global cyclical recovery, um, but not a recovery in productivity growth or, or underlying trend growth. We're definitely still in the new normal, new neutral uh, with respect to low inflation. Central banks are still struggling to get inflation back to target. Um, and that all translates into a very low neutral or equilibrium interest rate. And I think that's fully reflected both in the bond market, but also in the stock market, because stocks wouldn't be up here if interest rates were not down there. Jakob Fels, our correspondent on the front lines of the cold currency war that's uh, that's taking place here. You file a dispatch uh, here from those from those front lines. Jakob, give us a sense of of, of who's winning uh, when we have this weaker dollar. Well, clearly the Trump administration is winning uh, that cold currency war. You know, it's a it's a cold currency war, uh, not a hot one, uh, because it's fought with words and with covert actions. And I think markets, FX markets, clearly listened to the verbal intervention that we got from President Trump, from Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, from Peter Navarro, Trump's trade advisor, uh, uh, late last year and early this year, when the dollar was 10% higher than it is now. Uh, they were pushing back. They were saying the strong dollar is killing us. They were accusing Europe and China of manipulating their currencies. Markets clearly listened to that. Uh, the dollar has declined because there was an implicit and sometimes even an explicit threat of protectionist action. So so what we've seen this year is China has stabilized its currency against the dollar. Uh, the euro is low, uh, the euro is stronger, the yen is stronger. and uh, there is very little pushback mm. from Euro both Europe and Japan to their currency strength, even though, it threatens to perpetuate very low inflation. So at, I think Trump is winning. At that time, there, there was criticism of that cacophony of, of voices. We had the Rubin strong dollar policy, and then you had, uh, as you mentioned, many members of this administration commenting on the strength or weakness uh, of the dollar. Do you, do you see this as happenstance, that, that they've won by, by anything more than just good luck here in light of what was, was playing out earlier on in the administration's tenure? Yeah, I, th I think it's a mix, uh, uh, David. So I, th I think what happened was, first of all, the verbal intervention left some impression because, again, there was the fear of protectionist action. So you don't push back against your currency appreciating because you hope that this will prevent protectionist action from the U.S. And then the other important part of the dollar weakness we've seen this year is clearly the deflation of the Trump trade. Because while Trump is winning the cold currency war, he hasn't managed to push uh, many other policy yeah. actions through. We haven't seen any progress on taxes, for example. Yakum, in the time we've got left, I'm going to go back to a Matthew Tracy Yakum Fells piece in May that was exquisite. And it was completely pushing against the productivity is dead uh, view. 
What will be the catalyst to give us the Greenspanian mystery of better productivity that we saw in the 90s? Well, that's tough to say, Tom, but I think it could just be the passage of time because what we highlighted in the piece, Matt and I highlighted the widening gap between the, the, the leaders on productivity in each industry and the laggards. That gap has never been wider uh, than it's been in history. I wrote another piece this weekend on superstar firms, the emergence of superstar firms, highly productive companies. Think of the Fangs, the Googles, the Apples, um, uh, the Facebooks of this world, who have had extraordinary productivity growth. And then you look at other companies who have really been lagging. And, you know, I think this gap will have to close. Uh, uh, and the most likely uh, way how it closes over time is that the, the less right. productive companies will, will leave. They will have to exit or they will have to adopt new technologies themselves to bring productivity up. The timing of that is highly uncertain, but I'm pretty convinced mm. that over our secular horizon, next three to five years, we will right. see a pickup. And maybe it's Schumpeterian just clearing of the markets and moving the, the laggards out. You cite in your article two of our frequent guests, Professors Bryn Jolson and McAfee of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology on the use of technology. How do you get that technology to benefit a huge part of America that's not in the crucible of this revolution? If they're outside the revolution, how do we get them into the revolution? Well, I think that's that's a very tough question. I mean, first of all, we are all users. Large parts of America are users of the new technologies. The problem is many of the users of technology, of new technologies these days, don't show up in GDP. We use it in our leisure time. So partly I think this is a measurement problem. So consumers' welfare rises, the consumer surplus is increasing, but this is not showing up anywhere in the GDP numbers. So in that sense, we've already seen diffusion of technology. But what I do worry about is that as the productivity laggards uh, are leaving, are exiting uh, uh, their, their respective industries, you will see technological unemployment rising. So in that sense, I think we should be careful what we wish for. If we were to see a pickup in productivity growth, it would probably be accompanied by higher technological unemployment. And that could be quite disruptive and it could lead to a political backlash. How much of this is being reflected uh, in the, the jobs reports that we get uh, here monthly? We're looking ahead to another one on Friday of, of, of this week. Uh, is the issue of, of productivity at all being adequately reflected in those numbers that we see? Yeah, I think, you know, that's the mirror uh, image of weak productivity growth. The mirror image of weak productivity growth is stronger job growth. So to produce the same level of output, we need more people or to, you know, so, so what's happening is we're seeing very decent job growth, but most of the job growth is in low productivity and low wage sectors, uh, largely in the service sector. Uh, this is where we are sucking yeah. in uh, 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 workers that's good because, you know, even low-paid jobs are better yeah. than no jobs, but this perpetuates the low-productivity environment because we are creating a lot of low-productive right. and low-wage jobs. Uh, off script, one final question, Jakob Fels, if we could, for your Germany. The idea of what, uh, what Germany needs to do, there's a primal scream for a better, more buoyant consumer in Germany. Is it out there or is it just a cultural reticence? Well, I think partly it's cultural, partly it's demographic because Germany is aging <clears throat> very rapidly. 
Um, and so what, what can be done? I think, you know, tax cuts would clearly help. And I think after the election, which is scheduled for September, you will see a mix of higher government spending on infrastructure, but also on, on welfare spending. And you will also see tax cuts. So, so I think that could help a little bit. But by and large, I think this high savings rate that we're seeing, the low consumption in Germany, mm -hmm. is, is a structural phenomenon. It won't go away anytime soon. And that's why the current account surplus, which is more than 8% of GDP, is likely to stay here for quite a long time. Jakob Fils, thank you so much. Never enough time. Mm -hmm. And when you're in New York again, we'd be honored to have you in on television and radio uh, as uh, well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.